Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Thank you very much um, for getting up so early. Um, some of you, I suspect, might be a little worse for wear, but I'm a very sensible, moderate drinker, and I'm absolutely full of vim this morning. Can't wait to get stuck in. Um, <laughs> My name's Jane Garvey. I am one of the presenters on Women's Hour on Radio 4. So I have a vested interest in what we're talking about today. Um, some of these areas are subjects that we will have discussed on Women's Hour in the past and no doubt will again. Victoria Bateman is a fantastic intellect. She's a force of nature. She's got a really important message to deliver. So what we're going to do is we'll hear first from Victoria. And this event, of course, is sponsored by her employer. They're very proud of her, the University of Cambridge. <laughs> Um, and she is going to talk to you and talk to me, and then I will ask some questions, and then we'll throw it open to you. And please do feel free to get involved. Uh, this is going to be a fascinating hour. Um, so first of all, over to Victoria. Thank you. Well. Thank you all very much for coming along today. Delighted to see so many faces. Now, deep in Manhattan, not far from Wall Street can be found this mural. It stands in the inner lobby of the Woolworth Building, built on the retail fortunes of the Woolworth family between 1910 and 1913, one of New York's first skyscrapers. We could see it as a veritable monument of American capitalism, a tower of consumerism built on that wealth of Woolworth's. And at its very heart lies the goddess of commerce, seated with the world in her hands. And she's flanked on each side by men on bended knee, offering the transport revolutions that globalize the world economy that is there in her hands. The ship on the left and the railroad, or as we would call it, the railway, on the right. Now, whilst a woman here is central to the economy in the world of the gods, when it comes to us, the world of human beings, women are few and far between. And the numbers bear that out. There has only ever been one female Nobel Prize winner in economics. And at the other end of the pipeline, at the entry level, there are still here in the UK and in the US between two and three times as many young men studying economics as there are young women. Now, of course, in an ideal world, the gender of an economist really shouldn't matter. But given that we live in a society where the typical female experience of life can in some ways be different to the typical male experience, and certainly has been historically, then the reality is otherwise. The economy affects every single one of us every single day. And in fact, every single decision we all make feeds through to affect that economy. So how can an economics that is dominated by men alone not leave gaps in its understanding and modeling of the economy around us Gaps that will feed through into policy making and into our daily lives. And we can see those gaps around us right now. The crisis of care that we're facing. The underfunding of birth control services. The underfunding of women's refuges, as Sisters Uncut have been pointing out for some years now. And the way in which sex workers, the majority of whom are women unlike people in virtually any other profession, face a constant daily battle with the wrath of the law simply for trying to earn a living and in most cases feed their families. Now, not only are women missing from economics, so too are women's bodies, the vital importance of our bodily autonomy. That's despite the fact that women's bodies are probably the biggest political battleground that we face across the world today. 
there's a very famous feminist phrase that is always in the top of my mind, personal is political, and as an economist, I would say it is also economic. Now, whether that's Donald Trump's global gag rule that is defunding birth control for women in the poorest parts of the world, or back home in the US, recent attacks on women's ability to quite simply control their own fertility, or policies such as Foster and SESTA in the United States that are closing down the bank accounts and websites of sex workers, pushing them into greater danger, into greater poverty, something that sex workers have themselves stood up and protested about. Policies that I am afraid to say are currently of a kind that are being considered right here in the UK by the all-party parliamentary group on sex work, which includes a number of leading female MPs like Sarah Champion and Jess Phillips. Our bodies are today's battleground. Our bodies are on the front line. It seems everybody out there has an opinion on what we should and shouldn't be doing with our bodies and wants to police it. Now, as far as I'm concerned, and it's central to the book, an economy in which women don't have control over their own bodies is a poorer economy, it's a more unequal economy, and it doesn't just affect us as women, it affects everyone. Now, on a good day, I feel to some extent optimistic, because it's 10 years on from the global financial crisis, and we know economists have been under fire during that time, that they're under pressure to reform, that an economics revolution is, we're told, on the horizon. But like so many failed revolutions in history, the economics revolution will be a failed revolution unless it also includes women. And here there is reason for concern. Here are just two examples of leading books in economics. Books that propose a new way forward in economics, whether that is on the right-hand side, one of evolution or revolution, and on the left-hand side, that are tackling a problem that we face in the West, a slowdown in economic growth, offering new solutions. Now, between these two books, there are 50 leading economic contributors. So this is drawing on supposedly a whole range of thinking to lay the foundations for economic reform, a possible economic revolution. Of those 60 economic thinkers, six are women. Women are missing from this economic revolution. So as an economist and a feminist, if you ask me what the two have in common, the answer is simple, not nearly enough. Despite multiple waves of feminist activism over the last century and more, economics carries on regardless as if women never existed, as if women never happened. But rather than stand here and grumble, and as a woman of action, aren't we all? I have been doing my little bit to try and bring about change. Whether that is establishing an annual Women in Economics Day at my university, the University of Cambridge, in order to support and encourage the entry of young women into uh, the profession, or, admittedly, whether it is stripping off in front of academics and policymakers at the Office for National Statistics within Whitehall and at last year's Royal Economic Society Conference in order to highlight the elephant in the room, which is missing women and the lack of serious consideration of women's bodily autonomy within economics. And the intellectual case can be found in my new book, The Sex Factor. Now, it's a book that I'll admit is to some extent, autobiographical. So whilst I'm now an academic living comfortably in the ivory towers at Cambridge University, my start in life couldn't have been more different. 
I was born in 1979, the year Margaret Thatcher came to power, to a long line of cotton mill workers in Greater Manchester. I was born in Tameside and grew up for most of my life in Oldham. My father left school at 15 and my mother at 16. And as a girl, I really didn't know what economics was, but I lived and breathed economics like all of us every day of my life from a young age. When I think about my early experiences, they include my parents' small family business, which they set up in the late 1980s in response to a lack of jobs, and which was very soon hit by the severe economic crisis in the early 1990s, leaving us with high levels of debt. And then I think about my single mum in, in the year afterwards, my mother struggling to feed myself and my two younger sisters, despite working every hour around the clock at a time before the minimum wage and before tax credits. And I think about the years of poverty that I experienced, particularly as a teenage girl, when many days I was left feeling hungry, and I am sure that accounts for why I never quite reached the height of five foot. I am just one inch beneath. It's always been my ambition, five foot. Um, why I have this hairstyle, it adds an extra inch. Um, and, and, and how I had to perhaps dress in a more bohemian way by buying not just clothes, but blankets for my bed from, from charity shops. So the economy was a real lived experience for me, and I know it is for many people um, out there. And all of these experiences were against a backdrop of living in a part of the UK that I was told by my grandparents had once been on top of the world, had once been home to the Industrial Revolution, had created the thread on which Britain's bread hung. But whilst I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, was experiencing severe economic decline deindustrialization, culminating in social unrest, including race riots whilst I was away at university. Now, those experiences were what drove me passionately to study economics in the hope that by better understanding the economy, I could help reduce the risk that other people would have to face what I faced as a young girl and even worse. But the more and more economics that I read, the more I realized there was a mismatch between our lived experiences of the economy and the types of economy that we find in economics books. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized a common factor was missing throughout the whole of economics, the sex factor. And in the last five years, as I've been using my own body in art and protest, that has made that feeling more concrete. I have seen increasingly how economics, and I'm afraid to say some aspects of feminism, are neglectful of some of the most stigmatized women in our society, sex workers. So in this book, I try to bring together economics and feminism, the best of both, to address the big questions that we're all interested in. Prosperity. Why are some countries rich and others poor? Poverty and inequality. What can we do about it? State versus market. What's the appropriate balance? And boom and bust. Something we all experience throughout our lives. Why does it happen? Is there anything we can do about it? Now, since I'm a great believer in drawing on the past to understand the present, this book is filled with history. So if you're not a great fan of history, this is not the book for you. If you are, you will find everything in there from the Stone Age through to the Industrial Revolution and the present, but sometimes at breakneck speed. So fasten your seatbelt whilst you're reading it. Now, unsurprisingly, the first part of the book on prosperity draws very heavily on history. I look at how Britain, and indeed how the West more generally, managed to move from being international backwaters for millennia, well behind China, the Middle East, Pakistan and India, to not only catch up, but overtake, and not just by an inch, but by 
a mile. And the standard story that attempts to explain how the West got rich, how the West did it, is a very male story. It's one that focuses on men's lives, and particularly leading male scientists like Newton, male industrialists, male engineers, Brunel. Um, and you can see men of this kind cast into bronze in the center of our industrial cities, such as as shown here in Birmingham. Everyday women of a kind you see here with clogs on, on their feet and shawls around their shoulders are missing from this story. And that's in part because we're told that women's freedom comes after economic growth, that women are the passive beneficiaries of the wealth created by their male ancestors. We imagine in giving economic advice to poorer countries in the world today, that if they focus on their economies first, social freedoms, including women's freedoms, will come after. In this book, I turn the tables. I argue that women's freedom is the elephant in the room when it comes to explaining how Britain and the West went from being global backwater to being the richest part of the world in the 19th century through to the present day. I argue that the key difference between the West and the rest on the eve of the Industrial Revolution was to be found not in men's lives, but in women's lives. And we can see that difference through something as simple as the average age that women got married. Now, in many, many poor countries today, we see high levels of child marriage. And in much of the world, before the Industrial Revolution, that was also the case. It was common to be married by the time you were 18. But in this part of Europe, and certainly here in Britain, the typical age that a woman got married in the 17th and 18th century before the Industrial Revolution was a remarkably modern 25 or 26 years old, indicative of a relatively high degree of freedom for young women, and certainly the freedom for young women to decide for themselves whether and who to get married to. I talk in the book at length about how women's freedom, freedom fed through to affect all of the ingredients of economic prosperity, how it affected the skill base, how it affected investment in the economy, how it affected incentives to mechanize, how it affected entrepreneurship, and also how it affected democracy. The lesson that comes from this is very simple, that unless women are free, economies will hit a wall. And then, quite frankly, it's not so difficult to understand why there are still so many poor economies out there in the world today. Now, you might think that there's reason for optimism. You might think that women's freedom is on an upward trend across the long span of history, and that with it, therefore, will come prosperity. But as I show in this book, if we look at the long history of gender inequality or women's freedom, we find a series of ups and downs. We find that it has cycled across the long span of history, that women's freedom can move backwards, not just forwards, that women need to be constantly on guard, probably no more so than in the present day. The Industrial Revolution is a pivotal example of how women's freedom can help to sow the seeds for prosperity, but the prosperity that is brought doesn't always feed back to support women in return. Now, we can't think about the growth of the economy, the economic pie, without also thinking about how it gets sliced up. And of course, inequality is a pressing issue in many Western economies today. So in my book, I look at the links between gender inequality and income inequality, and I argue that the way we're trying to resolve inequality right now is precisely the wrong way. 
I argue that rising inequality in the West over the last 40 years or so is a product of too few women worldwide beyond our own shores having control over their own bodies, particularly control over their own fertility. This affects poverty at the level of individual families, meaning that women married from a young age have an ever-expanding set of mouths to feed, and that feeds through to create a large pool of cheap labor, which, as Western countries and poorer countries have come to engage more with one another, has acted to hold down wage growth at the bottom of the ladder here in the West. The current political narrative is one that seeks to put up barriers between richer countries and poorer ones, whether that's Donald Trump putting tariffs on cheap Chinese imports, or whether that's here in the UK, Brexiteers wanting to put up barriers between people. Now, if fundamentally at the roots of inequality can be found a lack of freedom, we should not be addressing that by restricting freedom, by restricting people's ability to move to make a better life for themselves, or restricting their ability to start up businesses and trading across the world. To truly solve this problem of inequality, we have to go to the root of the problem, which is women's lack of freedom over their own bodies worldwide. If we look at the work of medical experts, it suggests that even today, almost one in two pregnancies globally is not intended. And rather than making progress, rather than moving forward, we're moving backwards. Donald Trump's global gag rule, I've already mentioned, defunding birth control for women in the poorest parts of the world. And that's before we start on what's happening in the US itself. So if you ask me about the prospects for inequality going forward, I'm afraid they don't look very good if we're moving backwards in terms of women's ability to take charge of their own bodies. Now, any discussion of prosperity and inequality necessarily brings forth another big question, the role of the state versus the market. It's a question that has hung over our politics for more than a century, never more so than today, as politics moves towards the two extremes of the spectrum. Now, in my book, I try to avoid being ideological. I look at both the upsides and the downsides of both the state and the market. I look at Marxist feminism, the way in which capitalist growth is built on not just the cheap labor women provide in the economy, but the unpaid labor they provide in the home in the form of reproductive and caring labor. But I also look at libertarian feminism, the way in which markets can provide a release valve from societies that can be inherently conformist, societies and states imposing a view of what we should or shouldn't be doing with our lives. And I think there's no better film to show that than the one I have shown here, The Lives of Others. So I try not to be ideological. I look at both the upsides and the downsides of state and market. And at the end of the day, what we tend to find in poorer countries is both dysfunctional markets and a dysfunctional state. And in richer economies, well-functioning markets and well-functioning, capable, democratic states that work together, that cooperate, rather than being in conflict, giving a whole that is more than the sum of its parts. And it will be no surprise what I find as being at the root of that ability for markets and the state to advance themselves and work cooperatively, women's freedom. The way in which women's freedom can affect family structures is really quite significant. So in traditional families, we tend to have quite extended families where women have relatively little control over who they marry. 
As women's freedom advances, women are able to break away from that extended family unit to go out into the world and establish their own independent life and their own independent family. And this tends to result in smaller family units. Now, those smaller family units are not able to provide everything they need for their own subsistence. And so we need to work together across families. We need to engage with people beyond our own family unit. And that helps to build the types of trust levels that are needed to support market exchange in the economy. And it also builds the trust levels that are required for us all to pot together to provide for our mutual defense and for our welfare needs. Whereas in more traditional extended families, we can provide for ourselves within the family, which limits the advance of market exchange and the emergence of a state. So if you ask what is behind the way in which successful economies have managed to develop more functioning markets and a better functioning state, we need to go to the roots to women's freedom. Now, of course, I'm not saying there isn't still further progress we can make in this respect today. Um, there is, um, there is a lot to be done in terms of um, advancing the types of policies that the state could be adopting here in the UK to support the market activity of women. For example, childcare and elderly care being good um, examples. But I think if we look to history, we can certainly see the direction that we should be moving in. Now, the final part of the book looks at something that is as inescapable as death and taxes. And that is boom and bust. And yet, despite its ubiquitous nature, it's something that economists have really struggled to explain. And that's in part because to explain the way in which the economy is sometimes partying away and at other times in the doldrums, we have to begin with the reality of life. And that is the fact that the future is unpredictable. The future will always take us by surprise. Trump, Brexit, whatever is out there on, on the horizon. Um, now, if the future is unpredictable, that makes our decisions about what to spend and what to invest very difficult. Now, economists like to model the world as one in which we are all hard-nosed, rational calculators, where we can all imagine the future and then form our decisions on how much to spend and invest on the basis of that. But if the, if the future is largely uncertain, we are making our economic decisions every day in a fog of ignorance. And when we're operating in that uncertainty, in that fog, sometimes our emotions creep in. One moment we can be struck by greed and overconfidence, sending the economy wild, and the next moment by panic and fear, pulling it right down. So to understand the fluctuations in the economy, we need to bring in the notion that we as human beings are not just driven by rational, cold-nosed calculation, but also by emotions. Now, that seems pretty sensible. It seems a pretty obvious thing to do. But economists have been quite reluctant to incorporate into their models of the economy this more realistic model of human behavior. Now, why is that? Because for so long, rational, cool calculation has been seen as masculine and emotions as female. And as far as economists are concerned, it's far better to look masculine and wrong, rather than to give the appearance of being feminine and right. <laughs> so there is a ghost of macho man that hangs over the whole of economics, restricting our ability to explain some of the most fundamental phenomenon in our economy. Phenomenon that fed through right to my early life, to that failure of my parents' small family business that left us living in poverty. Here is an example of the dole queues that we saw in the Great Depression, but of course, just 10 years ago, we were beset by something similar. Bringing women and
and their bodies into the heart of economics has the power to transform the way we think about all the big questions from prosperity and inequality to state, market, and boom, and bust. What economics needs isn't the X factor, it's the sex factor. Economics has long been called the dismal science. Right now, it would be better to call it the sexist science. If economists can, at long last, take women and their bodies seriously, not only does economics have the power to catch up with feminist thinking, it could even overtake it, laying the foundations to support women's bodily freedom worldwide, and with it, the prosperity of our economies. Thank you. Victoria, thank you very much. Come and take a seat. Um, absolutely loads to get at there. Um, I'm having a think, and I'm sure the audience will be having a think. Does it matter, and I can't absolutely be certain of this, but does it matter that the majority of the people who've selected this as an event to attend are female? <laughs> well, do you know, thank you, thank you all for coming. Yes, but... but it, is, it is good to see... Um, quite a few men out there in the audience, but you are right, Jane, that there, is, there are a few more women than there, are, than there are men. I'm looking right up to the back. And this isn't uncommon, actually, for events on feminism. And certainly we find in <laughs> economics, the moment you put gender equality on a seminar announcement, men seem to lose interest. Aren't they interested in equality? Isn't that extraordinary? I can't believe it. Do you know... <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I, I, I always take the view that not every woman is feminist and not every man is anti-feminist. And I think actually some of the biggest battles that we face today as feminists are between women themselves. Imagine how much further we could go as women if we supported each other rather than at times, I'm afraid to say, undermining each other. Okay, in that spirit, let's have a ding-dong about sex work. Um, uh -huh. Because... Um, getting stuck in. Well, no, because there are areas of disagreement, I think, between your views yes. of sex work and the views of certainly some feminists, as you, yes, as you well I, know. I think it's probably the thing that most divides feminism okay. right now. So I, I would certainly... Uh, put it to you that there are many, many women um, who would never dream of making a judgment about a sex worker or in any way believing that what they did was wrong, per se, because who, are, who, are, who, are there, who, who could we to judge anyone and how they need to earn their living? But there are also many, many women who'd feel, and men who would feel very passionately that there has to be a better way, there have to be better options for poor people to earn their living, surely, and that's what we should all be striving for. So I should say what first opened my eyes to the plight of sex workers was using my own body, revealing my own body beginning five years ago when a nude painting of me went on show at the Mal Galleries and then uh, various naked protests that I've done since, um, all with the vein of freedom, whether it's supporting women's bodily freedoms or whether it's supporting freedom of movement and taking an anti-Brexit stance. And the amount of criticism and verbal abuse that I have received over this last five years has really been an eye-opener to the amount of abuse and criticism that all women get when they use their bodies in ways that are not considered to conform with what society believes we should be doing with those bodies. Um, and so I have, over that five years, listened out for the voices of sex workers. There are a number of sex worker unions here in the UK, the English Collective of Prostitutes, for example, um, the group Swarm. Um, and I have, I believe as an economist that we should listen to the workers and actually anybody within the labor movement should always take a view that you should start by listening to workers. And what sex workers are asking for is to be able to do their jobs in a less dangerous environment where the law actually supports them rather than is all the time chasing them or chasing their clients. And the types of legal changes that we've seen recently in Europe 
and in the US and that are being considered over here, the Nordic model approach. And what, just remind people what that means. So the Nordic model approach is one that decriminalizes the sex worker, but criminalizes the client. Now, as an economist, this does seem rather crazy because... In, in what way? Because so, I, so I am a lecturer at Cambridge University. Suppose there was a new set of government policies. I still have the freedom to be a lecturer, but my students are treated as criminals. How could that not affect my ability to earn a living? And the way in which I could earn a living, I would have to go underground, give secret lessons to students if it became a crime for students to attend university. I'm not, I'm not quite sure I buy the comparison. I don't think you're putting yourself in physical danger by standing and lecturing oh, okay. at the University of Cambridge. So, so if we think about... So at the university I've never done Cambridge, it myself. At, so. at the University of Cambridge, I, we, did, we did have an event recently. I was in discussion at the Cambridge Union with a sex worker who's very concerned about these policies. She's from the group Swarm. And one of the things she noted is that when you criminalize clients, one of the things that you do is you maintain the client base that is inherently abusive, because those are people that are never going to be put off by the law, that what you put off are other clients, clients that are less dangerous for sex workers. If we look at what's happening in the US right now, Foster and SESTA that are closing down the bank accounts of sex workers, removing their financial independence, and closing down their websites, which means to find clients, they have to go out onto the street. This approach that we are taking is pushing sex workers into greater danger and into greater risk of poverty. Sex workers themselves are protesting. They are speaking out. We had protests outside Parliament just a few months ago, but too few of us are listening, and that includes many people within the feminist movement who fundamentally believe that sex work shouldn't exist and that by increasing the danger sex workers are under, we can disincentivize women from using their bodies in this way and that that will be a necessary pain, therefore, for the longer term. Good. I wanted to ask you a bit about suffrage because when you were talking about how the West got ahead, mm. you didn't refer to women getting the vote. And I just wondered whether, well, to what degree do you believe that does change an economy? Yeah. So I, I, think, um, I think if we look at the, the women's movement over the 20th century, I think in part it was about making up for ground lost during the 19th century. So before the Industrial Revolution, it was relatively common for women to work, for example. And then as the Industrial Revolution wears on, we see women being pushed out of the labor market as the economy moves towards more heavy industry-type jobs. And also we find in the early trade union movement, we find a lack of interest for representing female jobs in domestic service, for example, and we see the state increasingly regulating women's work. And I showed a, a suffragette cartoon about that earlier on. So in some ways, the 20th century women's battle has been about reversing the male breadwinner model that became the ideal during and just after the Industrial Revolution. But you're right, in other ways, it was about making, making new ground. Um, though, of course, we should admit that for a long time, working-class men didn't have the vote either. either. No. Yeah. Um, but I think what, um, what we can say about democracy is that it is about much more than women just having the vote. And I think the way in which families operate provides a model for politics. Where families are patriarchal, we are brought up to shut up rather than speak up. All of us, in fact, not just young women, but young men, to be under the thumb of a patriarch. And if we compare that with families in which we have greater equality between men and women, where we don't have those patriarchal structures, where we're brought up from a young age to speak up rather than shut up, 
to have our voice heard, to hold people to account. What this does is to nurture a population that is demanding of democracy and that can hold our politicians to account. So I think fundamentally, it's not just women's ability to vote that matters. It's the way in which women's freedom affects the way family life happens. And with it as a society, whether we are happy to speak up and hold the politicians that we do elect to account. I'm, I'm going to try, try, attempt to discuss China very briefly, which is obviously a, a, a bold undertaking on my part. Let's see how far we get. Um, China's economic miracle um, was, of course, most of us would link it with the one-child policy. So if we're talking about women and bodily autonomy, now women in China, some of them anyway, are free to have more than one child. That's it's a rather different spin on things, isn't it? It is. So, I mean, if you ask economists how China has done it, I mean, this is a parallel, really, to how Britain did it with the Industrial Revolution, a really dark horse. Um, how China did it, most economists would say it's either the state or the market. So it's either market reforms, the introduction of capitalism into the Chinese economy, or it's having an economy where you have the heavy hand of the state working alongside the market, giving the best of both worlds. And actually, so women, women's bodies, uh, the one-child policy, often doesn't feature in the way economists think about how China grew rich. But I think it, 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 when you look at that one-child policy, it's quite strikingly different to the situation that you find in most other poor economies in the 1970s and 1980s and through to the present day, where women tend to have high levels of fertility, um, are often married at a younger age and have limited access to birth control. And I do think the ability for China to achieve lower levels of population growth as a result has, has meant that as the economy grows, that has fed through to push up the standard of living of the existing population, rather than to spread that wealth more thinly over an ever-expanding population. But at the same time, I think the idea of the state policing the number of children that we can have is morally abhorrent. And but, but, it, but effective. Yes, but we... We managed to do, we managed to achieve the same through a different route. So if you look at um, the, uh, the economy in Britain before the Industrial Revolution, the ability for women to go out into the labour force and work. Now, we're not talking about high-end jobs. You know, it would be a second-hand clothes stall on the edge of a market. But the ability for us to go out and work that gave us financial independence, that meant that we got married later and so had smaller families. So where we were free, in a sense, to make decisions about work and family, that you can achieve some of the same results. So I think, certainly, um, thinking about population is fundamental to thinking about the prosperity of the wider economy, but the way we achieve what China has achieved, I think, is by increasing women's freedom rather than policing the number of children that they have. And let's squeeze in a quick um, equal pay question. Um, why is equal pay still something we need to talk about? Oh, yes. And, and when you look at how this has changed, so in the late 19th century, the, it, typically women were earning half of what men were earning for the same job. And today we're, what, just under 20%. So we have made progress, but that pay gap does seem to be stubborn. It hasn't yet closed. And the estimates of how long it will take to close, well, we'll be out of the workforce yes, by then. Yeah. Yeah. Even I'll be out of the workforce yeah. by then. Yeah. So we've made progress, but there's still a lot And I work at Radio 4. You can go. stay there forever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so I think, you see, you see, fundamentally, we will not have equality in the labour market until we have equality within the home. But we won't have equality in the home until we have equality within the labour market. So these two things reinforce each other and actually makes it very difficult to move from a world in which you have inequality in both spheres, the home and the market, to one in which we have within the home a more equal distribution of care between men and women that then 
supports, enables their earning capacity in the labor market. And where we have equal earning capacity in the labor market, where we then go on to have children and families, it isn't the default option that it should be the woman that goes part-time or the woman that gives up her job because she's in the lowest paying job. So, But, but in, in practical terms, mm. if you are in that kind of uh, relationship in the home, then logically it, it makes perfect sense for the woman earning less money to give that up. Sadly, sadly. So I think where we need to begin is by thinking about that inequality within the home, that inequality when it comes to care. And as a society, we need to have a big debate about what we do about care. And this is a growing problem because whilst fertility is falling, we have an aging population. So care is becoming more and more important in the economy. And yet we have a crisis of care. If we look worldwide, three quarters of care is done by women, unpaid care. And that's the equivalent to two billion women in the world working full time for nothing. So women are carrying the burden of care. How can we make equal progress to men in the labor market when before we have got out of the door in the morning, we have already done a shift at home. Now, whether that requires men within the home doing more care, or whether it requires rethinking the system that we have in place, such that we have more state support for caring activity in the economy. You know, that's a debate that we have to have. To have. Um, fundamentally, care is at the heart of all economic activity. The workforce would not exist without the reproductive and caring efforts that are done mostly by women and yet are unpaid. I did ask you earlier um, who you'd like to be Prime Minister of the current available candidates. Oh. And you, you said basically, Jane, the wrong people go into politics. So, um, so we won't pursue that, but I'm sure that the audience have got lots of other questions. Who would like to go first? And I think there's, there's some roving microphones, so we can get the microphones to you. Some, some hands up here. Yes, the microphone. Oh, yes, sorry. We'll go to this lady first. Thank you. Hi. Hello. Hello. Um, where does religion fit into, or the excuse of using religion, fit into your or anyone's economic theories at the moment? Thank you. Um, do, do you know, I, I get some of the worst abuse from evangelical American Trump-supporting Christians who tend to be NRA supporters, National Rifle Association. And when you look at their biographies, they are anti-Islam because they claim that Islam tells women what to do with their bodies, whilst they also tell me that what I do with my body is a disgrace to women and that I should cover up. So I think, you know, there's a lot of hypocrisy out there in society. I think that when we look fundamentally at attitudes towards women's bodies, it is not just a religious issue. I think that fundamentally the way in which we hang a woman's worth, a woman's value on her bodily modesty, and the way that in turn feeds through to policies such as work bans, travel bans, female genital mutilation, all in a supposed effort to help us to protect our modesty so that our worth can be protected. At the root fundamentally of gender inequality is the idea that our worth rests on our bodily modesty. And I don't think it's just a religious thing. When I think about my own upbringing, which wasn't particularly religious, as a young woman, I was regularly told by my family that if I revealed too much of my body, that it would make people think less of me. And particularly as I progressed in the academic sphere, I was made to feel that everything I had achieved academically hung on a thread, that any moment the respect people had for me could drop to zero simply because my skirt blew up or my button pinged open at a conference or whatever. So I do think this idea that we rest a woman's respect and value on her modesty isn't just a religious one. I think it is one built into many of our upbringings, 
not just religious upbringings. And I think it's one that we need to tackle, but it's the one that we need to tackle by remembering at all times, my body, my choice, that it is up to a woman, an individual woman, to decide how much of her body she should cover or not. And so I am as opposed to burqa bans as I am to people telling me when I'm protesting naked to cover up. It is only the individual woman herself that should be left to decide. And that's exactly the view that I take when it comes to sex work. That is, it's not up to us to police what an individual woman does with her own vagina. It's up, for indiv up to individual women to decide what they do with their own bodies. Yes, the lady there. Thank you. Yes. Hello. Hello. Um, I'm extremely concerned, like many people, about um, the effect of climate change. Yes. In fact, the climate emergency. And dare I put it that yeah. it's we've got to where we've got to because of a masculine yeah. or a, a, a male-dominated view of the economy, mm. which is to just exploit the planet. Yeah. So um, listening to you five years ago, I'd have been cheering <laughs> you on. But right now, I wonder what yeah. does an enlightened economist like you think of where we've got to? Thank, thank you so much for bringing this up. It's such an important question. And of course, we are at the point where our planet is breaking at the seams. We have more than 7 billion people on this planet. And fundamentally, if we are in a world in which women have greater control over their own fertility, that's something that will inevitably feed through to a more sustainable planet. And I think there are important parallels between the way in which, as you say, our economy has in a sense milked the natural resources provided by the planet, and the way in which our economy has also milked that unpaid, reproductive, and caring labor that women have been providing for, for centuries. The other thing that we can say about climate change is it is women, poor women, the poorest women in the world that most bear the brunt of that climate change, but that are least involved in the decisions at the political level about whether or not we address it. So I think fundamentally, the more we take seriously women and their bodies, then the greater chances we have to do something about what is the most pressing issue that we face in the modern world. Just a really simple question. Have we got a duty as consumers to buy less or buy more responsibly or a bit you of You know, both? I think we should, we, should be, we should better use the power that we have as consumers. Um, ultimately, what is made in the economy is a product of what we choose to buy. So I think the more and more that as consumers we can become savvy, the more information we have on where and in what ways the goods we buy are being produced, the types of ethical um, ethical um, questions that are raised when we find out more and more about, for example, women working long hours in Bangladesh clothing factories, as well as some of the climate issues involved. I think it's up to us as consumers to, to some extent, make ourselves aware and to use the power we have not to buy things to help push our economy in the right direction. Okay, let's have um, a question here. Yes, lady with her hand up in the middle. It's going to take a while to get the microphone. Sorry, it's coming. You could always shout. <laughs> the one a bit closer. Thank you. Thanks. Um, so it's a, a kind of two-part question. So the first part is, do you think that any women actually want to be a sex worker? And then the second part is, um, with the mention of abuse in the industry, mm. if we're supporting that industry, are we in some form also supporting that abuse? Right, thank you. Um, such good questions that really go to the heart of it. So the first thing I'll say is that clearly there are lots of women in sex work that probably would rather not be doing what they're doing. And we've seen recent changes to the welfare system that groups on the ground have argued have pushed women into greater poverty and into sex work. But my view is the way we solve that 
is not by cracking down on sex work, it is by cracking down on poverty. No woman should have so few options that it is narrowed down to one alone using her body. So as sex worker groups themselves say, tackle poverty, not prostitution. Um, your other question, please remind me. Um, so it was about the mention of abuse. Yes. Um, so we know it's going on. So if we're supporting yeah. that industry, are we also, yeah. in a sense, supporting that abuse? Right. Now, I think you will find, for example, within agriculture, you will find the use of gangs of what are actually slave labour, digging potatoes out of frozen fields in parts of the world. We see human trafficking of that kind across many parts of our economy. We see it in domestic service. We see women who are not much more than children being kept as household slaves. But do we respond to that by banning women being able to work as cleaners, by banning farmers from being able to employ agricultural laborers, by banning um, people from being able to offer their services in farming or in domestic service? I think there are two problems that we need to solve. There is the abuse, there is the trafficking, but we need to solve that. And in fact, we can solve that without at the same time interfering with the rights and freedoms of sex workers that are doing what they're doing consensually. Many of them are in that situation. I have met them, I speak with them and engage with them regularly. Um, so I think fundamentally where crime is taking place and slavery trafficking is a crime, we should address that through the rule of the law but not by restricting women's freedom to, to decide what to do with their own body. Yes, Karen. Uh, hello, thank you very much. Um, my question is framed in the context of my work. Mm -hmm. um, I run my family business, which is called John Smedley Limited. Mm -hmm. It's a 235-year-old company that dates right back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Right. Our factory is based in Derbyshire, and... Um, we employ 400 people and we make 400,000 garments a year in the UK. And my question is, I feel that quite strongly that the greatest economic force that's acted upon my company over the last 40 years has been globalization. But that won't necessarily be the case for my children. I have two daughters who I hope will come into the business eventually. And that the force that may act on the business when they're in it is more likely to be sustainability. And how does that... How does the sustainability question interact with your uh, take on economics? Um, and, and I'd like to hear a bit about that. Thank you. Well, the, the first thing I'd say is if we all engage more with naked protest, then, you know, there would be, there would be fewer clothes that need to be made and, and perhaps fewer <laughs> heaps of disposed of clothes that have been worn just once or twice, bought for, for cheap prices from, of course, leading high street retailers. Um, so, um, yeah, um, a great to hear, actually, of a, of, of a textile uh, factory that is still going after 235 uh, years, that history of the Industrial Revolution continuing to the present day. And in fact, if you think, why are we such a stylishly dressed country today? Why do Brits lead the world in the fashion sphere? It is that very history of the Industrial Revolution. We know how to cut cloth and we know how to wear it. Whilst the Germans might have chemicals and cars, <laughs> we have fashion, and that means we know how to stylishly uh, dress. So history can cast a long shadow, and yes, there are big issues about sustainability and the culture that we have of throwing away clothes, wearing them once or twice, throwing them away, um, is something that, as consumers, we have the ability to change, to demand better quality clothes and fewer of them. Probably one more question. Yes, lady's hand shot up just there. Hi, I have a microwave. Um, oh, yes, sorry, you actually got the microphone. Okay, sorry, forgive me. Hi. Apologies. Um, so one of the more interesting questions I've asked about, uh, I've, I've heard asked in the discussion of sex work, <coughs> is um, what makes a woman selling her body for sex work different from a man selling his body for mining or building? Under safe working conditions, you know, mining and building would be significantly more dangerous than sex work. 
Um, but also, um, personally, I work directly with independent sex workers. I'm a photographer and filmographer, and I make content for their websites that they sell. Yeah. Um, and I can definitely confirm that there are a lot of sex workers who choose to be in sex work because they're passionate about it and also have many other options but prefer to be in sex work and make a lot more money from sex work. Um, so another one of my questions is, um, why do you think that women, and a lot of feminists in particular, find it so difficult to accept that some other women would like to do that, even if they can't imagine doing it yeah. themselves, when a lot of men okay. wouldn't oh, want to be... Got, she's got 50 seconds to answer Sorry, that thanks. question. <laughs> thank, thank you very much. Um, I think there is as a big strand of modern-day feminism that is intellectually elitist, hypocritical and unfair that views... <laughs> that views women who monetize their brain as superior to women who make money from their bodies. And you know, I think this is something that goes right back to the Enlightenment when we started to put the brain on a pedestal and everything else down below. So I think fundamentally it is that intellectual elitism within some strands of feminism that we need to tackle. Thank you very, very much, Victoria, and thank you all. And um, Victoria...